Well, once again, good morning. Such a gift to uh, be able to worship with you this morning. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, just know that I would love an opportunity to do that. Um, I will be at the front of the room at the end of the service. And uh, I offer this up at the end. But you can even just now begin to just be getting bold enough to come forward and say hello. Um, I'd love an opportunity to meet you and um, to be able to just... Um, pray for you, encourage you in any way that we can. We are in a study in the book of Joshua, and we're nearing the end of that study. And so if you want to flip over, uh, we're going to connect the dots between Psalm 91 and Joshua chapter 20 and 21. But isn't it strange, by the way, somehow God sometimes is perceived um, as a God who is eager to condemn, quick to judge, um, if you're here in this room and perhaps you came with a friend or um, you heard about our church and you just decided to come check it out because you felt like you needed to have some conversation with God, but you're not sure of him, it wouldn't surprise me if you might have somehow thought to yourself, God is eager to just kind of cast me aside, to throw me out. Um, I'm so glad you're here because we're going to see, I pray, you're going to hear that that's not the truth at all. But for some reason, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but it seems to be something we often perceive. I have many conversations um, with folks who feel as if God is eager. He's just waiting. Let me just see if they do something wrong so I can judge them and condemn them. As we wind down this study in the book of Joshua... We're seeing the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. Last week, we did a very quick um, review of many chapters, Joshua 15 through 19, where we see, as we talked about in some ways, the deed of trust. Israel has this list of cities that were given to them, and they're told to continue to go and take hold of those, thing, those cities, that God would go before them. But it's the fulfillment of God's promises that we see as the kind of come to the end of this book. And in chapter 20 and 21, we're going to see his provision and his graciousness for his people. You know, there's certain things in life that are sort of practical displays of a spiritual reality. We talk about that in church life sometimes. Uh, we talk about baptism in this way, right? That when we are baptized, there's this physical act that is taking place. We're going down into the water, being raised back up. And that paints a picture of our new life in Christ, the new creation that we are testifying to be because of Christ's work on our, in our life. And the water is symbolic. There's all of these symbols, but it's a picture for everyone else to see if something that has already taken place deep within our souls, being washed clean, not by water, but by the blood of Christ. And we're, in a sense, hiding ourselves underneath that. And one of the great errors that we can make in our faith is to believe that God may provide some means of salvation, but doesn't care about our problems and doesn't care. And again, is just looking for us to make a mistake. But the Lord cares very much about the details of our lives, the specific things. And this is what we're going to see in these next two chapters. God's two things, as we've studied this book, I think have been, we've talked about a lot of themes but two things specifically we're going to see highlighted here and have come up throughout all of the study of this book are justice and mercy. God's justice and God's mercy. 
If you think back to all that we've walked through, God's justice was on display or is on display as all of these Amorites, these people who have opposed God, rejected God, have not been willing to submit to God's ways, and they are being rightly condemned, even though sometimes we have a hard time understanding exactly why God is doing what he's doing in terms of bringing about justice, and the Israelites are wiping out all of these evil kings. That's God's justice on display. But we also see, if you think of it, his mercy in the same way. Look at the Gibeonites that we looked at just a few weeks ago who tricked the Israelites into making a covenant with them, had clearly done all these things, but they at least acknowledged God's power and that if they stood against him, they would surely die and in that they lived. They became the servants of Israel. We see his mercy on display. We saw his justice in the condemnation of Achan. Do you remember that way back a number of weeks ago, maybe even months now, where Achan sinned against the Lord? He was to go in and the Israelites weren't to take anything from the city. But he took some and he said, hey, I need a little gold and silver for my family. I'm not sure that the Lord is going to provide for me. And so he was killed. The very next chapter, we see his mercy, God's mercy. As they step into the city of Ai, they destroy it. And God says, you take the plunder from this city. You take the livestock. You take all of the things with you. And if we back all the way back, we see his justice on display. Moses and his generation not allowed to enter into the promised land because of their sinfulness. And yet here we know Joshua and the Israelites continue to be sinful. And yet in God's mercy, they're welcomed into this promised land. And here, in these next two chapters, we're going to see some very tangible ways that God is caring for his people and his justice and his mercy is on display. As we read in Joshua chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint, to the, appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses. By the way, just in that first few sentences, we see that this entire book, as one commentator would say, is God, or excuse me, the Israelites acting out the script that God gave to Moses and was passed down to Joshua. God being sovereign over all of this entire story and all that is happening. And here again, he tells Joshua, appoint these cities of refuge that I spoke to you through Moses. And this is what these cities of refuge were. In verse 3, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly, uh, or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he, he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in the city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. We see some very practical instructions here given to Joshua about these cities that he calls the cities of refuge. Now, if you're wondering about where all this comes about, if we went all the way back and we talk about God's big story, all the way back in Exodus, God explains or uh, it sort of, of course, gives the, the commandments, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. He gives the law and he gives that back in Exodus. But there's this differentiator made between those who would commit murder and those who would commit what we now call manslaughter or as in our text this morning, manslayer. 
And there's a differentiation there that is distinguished between those things. And so God established these cities of refuge so that those two different offenses... God knowing the character of man, and we're going to dig into that in just a moment, but he separates those two different offenses and makes a plan of of, of how to deal with these two things. If we fast forward in Deuteronomy 19, Moses is told when you go into the promised land, you're going to establish these six cities. And these six cities will be amongst the 48 cities that are given to the Levites. If we flip over to Joshua chapter 21, we see the Explanation of the cities that are given to the Levites. Then the heads of the fathers, this is verse 1 of chapter 21, the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priests, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers, the houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to him at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses, once again through Moses, that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And the rest of chapter 21 is just the telling of these cities, the names of these cities, where they were located. So what's happening here is the Levites, they of course, one of the tribes that was not, the only tribe not given a particular area of land within the promised land for their own possession. Because these were the people who would teach the people the law and also were the priests. They were the people who would serve as the priests of all of the congregation. And so they're dispersed among 48 cities. And amongst those cities, there were six cities that were set apart as these cities of refuge. The cities matter. So what is it that's happening with these cities of refuge? Why did God appoint cities of refuge? And why is it recorded for us in the Bible? Why do we need to know about these cities of refuge? Well, It teaches us something about God's character, that he sets these cities apart and has a purpose and a plan for how to deal with the sinfulness of the human condition. You've wondered, perhaps, what is God doing? What is he up to? As Christians, we understand that God has a plan of how to deal with the human condition of sin. And that plan was delivered through Christ. But all the way back, even in these stories, we see God working this out in these very practical ways. So, what's this city of refuge all about? Well, if we flip back over to chapter 20, we'll understand that essentially he's making again this distinction between manslaughter and murder. Of course, murder is forbidden by the law, and so killing someone resulted in someone else being killed. Where there was bloodshed, there could be, according to the law, further bloodshed by the offender. And so, knowing that how things would happen and how man is going to react if someone is killed, you can just imagine this. A family member, a friend is killed. Guess what the human heart wants to do? Wants to avenge that death, and so he's going to go and pursue the person that killed whoever it is that was killed. But, in verse 3, it explains what manslaughter is. A person who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly if we skip ahead to verse 5, it says that he's, it, this is someone who did not hate him in the past. See, the avenger of blood pursues him. They shall not give the manslayer into, the hand, into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in his past. The Levitical law allowed for an eye for an eye. 
A tooth for a tooth, you've heard that. And you might not have heard this before as well, but that law that was given was in some ways to limit what man would do. Because, again, we understand this. If your eye is taken out, what do you want? Death. You're not, you're not going to hold yourself back to an eye for an eye. You're going to do something much worse to that person, especially if it's a friend or a family member. You're, you want to exercise something worse than that. And so God's law limits our retaliatory kind of impulses to say this is the extent of which this sin can be accountable to. Death for death, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But if this person was a victim of an accidental killing, then there needed to be something that was done. And it shouldn't result in death. And so God provides this mean for the manslayer to flee and to go and find refuge in a city, these cities that were set apart. All these attacks on the Bible. Isn't it funny, just as a quick aside, when we look at Scripture, do you see the foundation of our legal system? By the way, not just here in Joshua, but we can go all the way back to the book of Exodus and we see the structure and the way things are. And we now, even still, I am not a prosecutor. I'm sure there's perhaps someone in the room or listening that knows these things, but there is manslaughter and murder and there's different accountability for those things and the offenses are handled differently. And we see this all in God's word. And so this is this differentiation that is made, that this person could flee to a city where he could find refuge. And the Levites, the priests there, would hear his case and then would deal with that person accordingly. In verse 4, he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate to the city, explain his case to those elders. He comes to the city and he says, this is what happened. We were all chopping down some wood. I was handing my axe and it just kind of had a little bit of a loose grip, flew and hit Johnny in the head. I'm sorry that he died. So Johnny's brother that's coming after me, I need a little protection from him. And so they fleed into the city and they would hide there and they would find refuge. God making provision in the details of our lives. He understands justice, that there should be accountability, there will be accountability for sins and these things that come, but there's also mercy for this person, for those that didn't intend to commit murder. He provides a merciful outcome. The key to this text, though, I believe, is if we look at the end of how, when the offender can return home. It says in verse 6, He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at that time. And after the death of the high priest, it says, Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. There's a lot of confusion. There's actually some argument a little bit of exactly why did God say that the offender can return home after the high priest's death. Some argue that, in a sense, that the 
high priest of the city and sort of the schedule of the high priest, not the schedule, but the life of the high priest, that upon his death there was, a, in, a, in a sense, sort of a cleansing of all things. Everything sort of reset. After the high priest died, there was a reset, a new high priest would be installed, and now all of the things that preceded that high priest were sort of wiped away. But more than likely, there's something deeper than that. It looks similar, but deeper than that. See, the one who had caused bloodshed could be protected from his own blood being shed, but couldn't return home until that death of the high priest. And that points us to the greater high priest. Pastor Matt began in Hebrews chapter 10. And what we know about our greater high priest, this high priest that is pointing to the greater high priest, Jesus himself, made sacrifice for sin. And upon his death, Upon his death, all sin was atoned for. All sin was atoned for. So we have a great high priest in Jesus that in Hebrews chapter 10 says, after making atonement for sin, he sat down. He made atonement for sin by his own death. The manslayer committed or caused a death to happen. There was bloodshed. He's protected from further blood being shed, primarily his own. The community is protected from further bloodshed. This is becoming a back and forth thing. But ultimately, at the death of the high priest, when there is more bloodshed, then there is a cleansing. This gives us a picture of what happened on the cross. See, Jesus shed his blood for the sins of every one of us. All the sins of the world laid down his life. His blood was shed and he made a sacrifice once and for all on the cross. And the power of what Jesus did as the greater high priest, when it says that after making atonement for sin, he sat down, that tells us there would no longer be any other atonement needed. That that atonement, his death on the cross was sufficient No more atonement need be made. No more atonement could be made for the sins of the world. See, as we think about those two themes that we began with, justice and mercy, God is just, God is merciful. Here's what I know to be true, and I expect many of you in this room understand to be true. If we examine our own hearts, as we look at our own lives, we know our hearts to be sinful, We know that our hearts often drift from the Lord. We know the condition of our own souls, and we know that in his justice, God would be just to condemn us. God would be just to shed our blood for us to have eternal death separated from God. But in his mercy, we see the mercy displayed for us through Christ. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not so sure about that. Is, I don't know if my heart, I, I've never committed murder, let alone, or man, manslaughter, let alone murder. Well, we have to go back and just remember just a few months ago, if you were with us, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we spent an entire series walking through that text. And do you remember what Jesus said about the law? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he broke down the law and he says, you say you have not murdered anyone, but if you have had anger towards your brother, you have killed them. And so we know in our own hearts when we are honest with ourselves, when we really consider 
our hearts, we realize that God would be just to condemn us. But in his mercy, in his love for us, he provided a place for us to run to find refuge. And that's why we began, as Kent read for us, in Psalm 91. We find refuge in the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, knowing my own heart, knowing how often I try and run from the Lord, flee from the Lord, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress in God in whom I trust, my God in whom I trust. What's our tendency? This is just a picture. This will help us see even how fickle our hearts are. Isn't it our tendency when we find our own sinfulness that it kind of comes up in our lives in some way, there's some evidence, things aren't going right, we kind of realize how we've sinned against the Lord, we've not handled this situation the right way, this relationship isn't going right. Whatever those situations are, I can't I possibly know every condition that's, that's going on in your hearts right now. But when you think about those things, what do we want to do? We want to flee. We want to run away. It's why so often we run away from the church when there's sin involved because we don't want to ever allow our sin to be sort of brought to the forefront. We want to try and hide from God. But what the psalmist says is that we run to the Lord and we say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so we show a trust in the Lord, a confidence in the Lord, a confidence in what Christ has done for us through his mercy when we run to the Lord when we find our refuge and our hope in Him. The psalmist says, as an act of worship, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings. You will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. We don't have to fear the terror of the night, it says. We don't have to fear those things that would come against us, pestilence and all these challenges that would come because we hide ourselves in the refuge of the Lord. And that refuge that we hide ourselves in is Jesus himself. Jesus, the wings of God, God's refuge, his faithfulness that the psalmist talks about is Christ's shed blood on the cross. We hide ourselves under, as we sometimes used to sing when we were younger, the banner of Christ that is over us. And we run to the Lord. So rather than shrinking back in our sinfulness, rather than trying to hide, again, what does the manslayer do? Knowing that there's a problem, knowing that there's an issue, knowing that justice will be served, he runs to the refuge that God has provided for him, and he hides there until he finds life again. We, in this life, as we understand our own sinfulness and the brokenness of our hearts and how fickle we are, we run to the Lord. We run to the refuge that he has provided for us, the eternal refuge of Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, having once and for all made atonement for sin. My hope for every soul in this room is that we might 
enter into the refuge and the rest that Christ has provided for us. Flip over to Joshua 21 and let's look at how this text ends. Picking it up in verse 43 of chapter 21, it says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. Everything that God had promised his people was fulfilled. They were stepping in to the promised land that he had given them. And look what happened when they stepped into the promises of God. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he has sworn to their fathers. The Lord gave them rest on every side. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Here's what happens when we forget who God is. We sin. We, through the grace of God, we become aware of that. And we're like, that wasn't right. That was wrong. That was a sin against God. That was a sin against my friend, my brother, my bride, my spouse, my co-worker. We try to run away and hide, hoping that it'll just kind of maybe go away. Might just simply be forgotten. And in our relationship with God, we tend to say, I'm just not going to deal with him anymore. I'm going to try and forget that he's even there. I'm going to maybe try and convince myself that he's not real because I don't really want to deal with that. And so we run away and our souls are tormented. There's turmoil. We can't sleep. We can't get things fixed. Just further pain and suffering sort of seems to swirl all around us. Problem after problem and we are just wondering what's going on and why is this happening and how is this happening? And all the while, God has made a place where we can find rest for our souls. He's provided a place of refuge. He's given us space to hide underneath the graciousness of his love of his mercy and this morning all I'm asking all I believe that God is pleading with you is run into the refuge that I've provided for you through Christ and find rest for your weary tired souls Notice I said nothing of figuring it out, fixing it, doing something on your own. I said run to the refuge of Christ. Hide yourself under the finished work of the cross.
where death, where blood was shed once and for all to atone for every sin. Mine and yours. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we demonstrate our confidence and our trust in the Lord, not when we flee, but when we run to Him. If you're far from the Lord and you have no idea, you're just like, man, I hope this guy stops talking soon. Good. You're in the right place. I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're here. Hear this final word. Run to Jesus. Find rest for your souls. When I'm down front, come say hey and say I need help running to Jesus and we'll be happy to do that. Let's respond to the Lord's kindness, His justice and mercy, His greatness as we stand and we sing. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.